Fantastic. We're just going to start with the episode and then ask you all the questions because we don't want to miss anything. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So today, welcome to the Weekend Sober Podcast. We have a very special guest with us today, Martin Lockett, who is a co-host on the Rock Bottom Podcast, has written a couple books, um, Prison to Purpose Pipeline, and another book highlighting some short stories of his journey. Um, He's had a powerful, powerful transition from some tough stuff with alcohol and things that uh, relate to as a result of alcohol use and um, circumstantial stuff that he really overcame. And I am beyond privileged, as is Kim, to have him on our podcast today. So I'd like to have a warm welcome to you, Martin Lockett. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you so much, Martin. We're so excited to chat with you and to hear from you today. Um, You know, you had reached out to us and it was sort of, um, I think it was at the beginning of the summer and we, Catherine and I had to take a break because we have, between the two of us, we have five kids and it was time to take care of ourselves with them. (laughs) Sure crazy yeah. children. Um, but I'm so glad that you are our first guest of season two. So All right. that yeah. is, that is exciting. That is um, the last guest of season one. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. First of all, so much for having me. It's truly an honor. I've listened to your guys's episodes and it's, it's just genuine, uh, conversation around really tough topics that I think people, people, I, I know people relate to, and hopefully are able to extract things from these, 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 uh, these, these really important conversations that can help them in their, in their lives and in their struggles. So thank you for having me. Well, thank you, thank you for that. Um, why don't we start with the the toughest stuff, right? Let's start with really what happened, what drew you to alcohol at a really young age in your teens, right? As well as Kim and I. Yeah. Sure. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon in the 80s, and it looks a lot different today than it did then. It's been gentrified and nice coffee shops on corner 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 blocks and things like that. But in the 80s, it was a war zone. There was, you know, gangs were fighting for territory and and there were drive-by shootings routinely. There was, you know, prostitution and needles on the streets. I mean, it was it was a, a very uh, crime ridden uh, uh, community. And fortunately, I had the, the the good fortune of having two loving parents in the household who were very very active in our lives. And so I remember my dad would ha- have a twin brother, so he would have us enrolled in little league baseball and Cub Scouts and Pop Warner football and wrestling and all these activities to keep us busy. And I think about it today as a 43-year-old man, and I think his his primary reason for doing that, aside from spending time with his kids, was to keep us from those negative influences of the street. And so it worked until we got to high school. So, you know, we all know that a lot of things change socially, biologically, hormonally, during high school. And so I I was a terribly shy kid. And so when I got to high school, that made me pretty much at everybody's mercy, whoever would accept me and have me, I would do whatever they, you know, wanted me to do. And so this led to my brother and and, and I hanging out with a, a notorious gang member. He was only one year older than us, but he was, I mean, he was, he was it, right? Like all the the guys feared him and all the girls loved him. And he was so popular 
and he was a friend of the family. So we kind of had, you know, the end role to be able to hang out with this guy yeah. and by proxy become popular. So yeah. I remember he had taken us to a party. And when I was 14 years old, he had taken us to a party. All these these teenagers are there. It's a wild party. And he, he has my brother and me our first beer. And we're looking at each other thinking, there's no way we can drink this because mom and dad would absolutely kill us. We were not raised this way. <laughs> but we're also making the mental calculation that if we're going to be accepted amongst these 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 kids, we have to, I mean, we have to do it, right? So I remember I took a, the, my first few swigs off of that beer and it was disgusting for starters. But I remember my, my, my chest had heated up mm -hmm. that all my inhibitions started to come down. And I could finally freely talk to people without breaking out in a cold sweat, right? I could have conversations with girls without fumbling over my words. I may have been slurring my words somewhat, I would imagine, <laughs> but at least I could get through a conversation and feel okay about it. Yeah. And so for me, that was, that was, that opened up the floodgates. That was a miracle that enabled me to finally be the Martin that I always wanted to be, but just didn't feel that I could. And so initially for the first couple of years, it was a, a social lubricant. It allowed me to freely, you know, be who I, you know, be who I was, so to speak. And, uh, and gave me a lot of comfort, but around age 16 is when things started to take a, a darker turn for sure. So when was your first, when was that first sip? Was that your freshman year? That was my freshman year. Okay. Yeah. And then between then and 16 like you were saying hormones still high school all of the stuff all of the social pressures it just wasn't making it any easier right and again so i was I, I really struggled with my identity and figuring out who i was and what my role in this world was going to be and you know you, you you get you turn 16 17 now you're starting to think you know, uh, in more abstract terms and, and, and what's really important to me, what's my value system? What do I believe in? You know, what mark do I make on, you know, do I want to make on the world and what occupation do I want to have? And so I'm starting to think about all these kind of, you know, heavier topics now because I'm no longer a kid. I'm actually transitioning into young adulthood. And it was so overwhelming for me because I hadn't figured that out. And I didn't feel that I had a safe space to be able to explore those things because as loving as my parents were, they just weren't, equipped yeah. for that yeah. um, and largely because of the way they were brought up and things like that, you know? And so I felt pretty isolated. And so that's when I started to then drink in isolation. I remember I would, I would literally, I would drink before I went to school. I would, you know, we were stealing alcohol every day. So I would drink during my lunch breaks and then I would drink after school and I would come home from school and I would lock myself in my room many, many, many days and turn on some sad music and just drink at 16 years old. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I was I was I was mired in, in depression and I had a ceiling on my life that said, well, nobody around me is doing anything, you know, of, of you know, of note as far as I was concerned. So why would my life be any different? No matter how hard I try or want to go to college and do all this, you know, grandiose things. It just wasn't going to happen for me. It's what I had thought. Yeah. And so I remember uh, struggling with my identity so much that I would I would wear, you know, the baggy gangster clothes and 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 carry the gun and, and sell the crack cocaine in my neighborhood with my buddies to be accepted. And then I had a job at an ice cream parlor after school because my parents were big on us, you know, understanding the value of a dollar and working hard for your money and all that. 
And so I had gotten a job at the ice cream parlor, and this is when I was 16 years old, and I would bring a spare change of clothes because all of my coworkers were white, and I would hang out with them after work. We'd go shoot pool or whatever, and I would bring a spare change of clothes of, you know, Tommy Hilfiger and Ralph Lauren Polo and all the preppy clothes mm-hmm. to match what they were wearing and change my vernacular to speak how they spoke. And just it's exhausting. literally navigating between two worlds to gain acceptance, but honestly not really feeling accepted entirely in either one. Not but, either. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so that, you know, just, just the weight of that was just so overwhelming. So it just, it just became easier to just drink and just drink it away and not have to think about it. And so that was when, that was when my alcoholism really set in around 16 years old and, uh, and it persisted for the next eight years leading into this, this fateful day. Was your brother, was your brother in cahoots with you? Was he drinking like this as well? The two of you were sort of um, involved in both total polar opposite worlds. Yeah. Right. So, well, he, thankfully, he, he was not drinking for the same reasons that I was. He was still more on the social okay. aspect side of it where, yeah, he wouldn't, he wouldn't just drink by himself. If he was drinking, it was usually all of us together. Okay. And, so and Did he know, I'm sorry to interrupt. Did he know that you were drinking before school and all of that? Or He did. And, and here's the thing. So when I, when I had uh, written and published my memoir while I was in prison and my sister had read it, and she said after that, re- reading that book, she said, Martin, for the first time in my life, I feel like I really know my brother. She said, I knew you were drinking a lot, but I just thought you just enjoyed drinking. I had no idea why you were drinking and what you were struggling with. It wasn't something that I let on. I mean, who wants to talk about these these deep insecurities? And, and, and also probably at that age, you were not even aware of the reasons why you were drinking. I think it takes getting sober to really reflect on why you drank that way, you know, and like you were so young, you weren't even really aware of what you were doing and that it was so bad. You know, you were just in the moment trying to get through the day and probably knew other people were probably doing it as well, you know, um, and what you were doing probably wasn't as bad. I mean, I don't know if you were into drugs at the time, but there were probably a lot of your friends were maybe doing drugs and it's, you know, you mentioned selling crack cocaine and so i think alcohol was probably minor compared to some of that stuff right well absolutely you're right and all i knew was that i i felt badly about my life and so i just didn't want to feel badly right i didn't know all the nuances and the complexities to why i was feeling that i wouldn't learn that until later when i got you know when i studied sociology and psychology and got degrees and all that good stuff But no, at the time, I just knew that I I wanted to escape the way that I felt. And as we all do, or many of us do who struggle with 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 substances, we compare our lives to other people's lives to to mitigate, you know, the shame that we feel for drinking or using the way that we're doing it. So as long as I'm not that guy under the bridge with a a paper bag, right, right, then (laughs) I'm okay, right? It's not that bad. Right. So we tell ourselves what we need to tell ourselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like you said that, you know, when you had that first sip, it enabled you to have as a social lubricant to talk to girls, right? It is such an enabler and it just is like a little shadow, right? It just comes in and then takes over and then controls all those shadows. And then we Mm -hmm. have no control over our life. And it has us thinking all these crazy things. 
Yeah, I when you said that, I always referred to it as like the magical elixir. And I started drinking at 14 as well. And, you know, I remember my first sip and I write about, I'm actually publishing a memoir as well. And I write about that very first sip I had at that first party. I remember I was 14 years old and I remember the feeling of just being so uninhibited and Mm -hmm. so loose and like I could do anything. And I remember being able to talk to boys and just Mm -hmm. feeling like, oh my God, this is so fun. Like this makes life so much easier. And then going to college and it's just snowballing and getting so much worse. And yeah, it's just, it's really interesting to hear your perspective on, on this. And so you said, you know, it, it progressed obviously for the next eight years till, and you said till that fateful day. And I think we, we need to hear about, tell us, tell, tell us, us what, what that and our listeners, yeah. exactly what happened. Sure. So I was living with my girlfriend in Vancouver, Washington at the time, which is just a half hour from Portland, Oregon, where I, where, where I had grown up, but I was working in Portland, Oregon. And so I remember it was, it was any normal day. I, I, it was new year's Eve of 2003. So let's paint the scene. And I was 24 years old and I kissed my girlfriend goodbye, got in my car, went to work, and we had gotten off work early because of the holiday. And so it's about 11 o'clock, we're, we're wrapping things up. And as we're about ready to clock out, my boss had joked with us and said, now you guys go out and have a good time tonight, but please don't let me wake up and see you on the front page. Mm-hmm. Of course, we laugh it off. Nobody thinks anything of it. We clock out, but obviously it's been almost 20 years and I've never forgotten those prophetic words, right? Mm-hmm. So... I leave work at about 11.30, and I go straight to the liquor store where I bought a fifth of gin. And then I, I proceeded to my parents' house to hang out with my twin brother because that's where he was living at the time. So I get to my parents' house, and I hang out with my twin brother, and I drink the alcohol over two or three hours. And then he and I had made plans for later that night to attend a friend's house party, a guy we had gone to high school with. So after I drank that fifth of gin... I then went back to the store because this was customary for me. Every single day, I would buy four 24-ounce cans of of malt liquor because it was like 8.3% alcohol, and it was disgusting. But as an alcoholic, you want to get the most bang for your buck. So I bought four 24-ounce cans of beer, 96 ounces in total, that I drank between the hours of like 5 and 8 o'clock that night on top of that fifth of gin. So it's about eight o'clock and my brother and I decided we would go to another friend's house in the meantime to hang out because we didn't want to get to the party too early. So we get to that friend's house, the three of us hang out, we drink a pint of hard liquor together, kill some time. It's about 11 o'clock. So we go to exit his apartment and here's warning number two, his mother from the kitchen yells out as we're walking out the door. Now y'all be careful tonight. You hear And of course, we all said, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We're good. Obviously, we had no intentions of being careful that night. Let's be clear. So we get to the party and we see a bunch of old classmates. We drink more alcohol, of course. We have fun. We bring in the new year. Everything is great. We exit the party at about 12, 15 a.m. The three of us get into my vehicle and I take my brother home without incident. And I get back onto the freeway to take my brother home. And I'm sorry, take my friend home without incident, get back on the freeway to take my brother home. And at this point, all I'm thinking about is how exhausted I am. And I can't wait to get my brother home because I still had another half hour or so to drive to my house. So on the freeway, I begin to elevate my speed to about 80 miles an hour. And this makes my brother nervous. And he says, hey, man, you know, you should slow down. You know, the police are out. It'd be in the holiday and all. 
And I thought, well, you know, that makes sense. So I went ahead and slowed down. And we continued to drive, and I exited the freeway. So now we're driving in a residential area. And again, I just want to get him home. So I begin to pick up my speed. Now it's about 60 miles an hour in a 30 or 35 zone. And this time he he gets angry with me and he says, man, slow down before we crash. And I snap back at him. Calm down. I know what I'm doing. I've got this. I've done it a hundred times. Just calm down. But just to appease him and keep him quiet, I did go ahead and slow down. So we continue to drive and I'm just about to get into the left-hand turning lane to drop him off at our parents' house. And he suddenly realizes he's all out of cigarettes. So he says, hey, man, let's go up the road so I can get some cigarettes. I'm all out. And I'm thinking, great, here's one more stop that I don't want to have to make. So we drive for a couple blocks. And then about two blocks from that point, there's an intersection. And the mini mart we need to get to is just beyond the intersection. And so I'm looking up at the light and the light is yellow. And as intoxicated as I was, I still knew there was no way I was going to make this light. There was just no way. But it didn't matter because... In a split second, I had made up my mind, I am not going to wait. I want to get these stupid cigarettes and get him home and go to my house and go to sleep. So I immediately, in a split second decision, uh, uh, you know, make up my mind to just punch it, right? I punch the gas. I'm tunnel vision, not seeing anything to the right or left of me. And I, I accelerate quickly because I'm in a newer model vehicle. So within seconds, it was just boom. I mean, just, just the most earth shattering crash you can imagine. And I remember immediately the airbag, you know, deploys and, and it's, it's smothering my face. It feels like I'm being suffocated by a parachute and my car comes to a slow winding halt. And I immediately look to my right to see if my brother's okay. And he's moving. So I'm somewhat relieved that we're both alive. This is good. Simultaneously, a guy comes rushing up to the driver's driver's side door frantically. Are you guys okay? Are you guys okay? Yeah, we're okay, I tell him. And I step out of my vehicle. And sadly, my first instinct was not to go check on the people I had just hit, but rather to assess the damage on my car because, again, my car was my status symbol of success, mm -hmm. right? I was so superficial and it conveyed to the world that I was somebody. And so I'm walking around my vehicle and I'm looking at my custom rims that are destroyed, the entire front end is smashed inward. And I'm devastated because... I'm now looking at my prized possession in a heap of crumpled metal, right? And then my brother gets my attention and mm -hmm. he starts to point across the street where the car had spun about 70 feet before it stopped. And he says, hey, man, he said, I think I see somebody lying down on the pavement over there and um, it doesn't look like they're moving. Mm -hmm. So instantly, you know, I kind of snap out of what I'm what I'm thinking about. And it dawns on me that the magnitude of what I had just done. Right. But obviously, I didn't have time to process anything because within seconds, lights and sirens are everywhere. Mm -hmm. And the policemen are on the scene and they're talking to me and they take my brother a few feet away to talk to him. And about, I don't know, two or three minutes into that interview, that officer had confirmed to me what I had, you know, intuitively known to be true, which was the person who was lying on the pavement had perished. Mm -hmm. And he informed me that another was being driven by ambulance to the hospital just blocks away. And so I'm placed under arrest, I'm put into the back of the cruiser, and we head for downtown for processing. And I'm listening to the police radio from the back seat because there's a lot of chatter about the crash, as you can imagine. And about 10 minutes into that ride, 
what it sounded like what had come over the police radio was that there was another passenger in the vehicle who had been pronounced dead at the scene. And so I asked the officer, I said, excuse me, sir. I said, did I just hear that correctly? Did I just hear that someone else was in the vehicle and, and they didn't make it? He said, unfortunately, yes. Martin. So there are two deaths. There's one person in the hospital with, with life-threatening injuries who could lose his life on one hand. And on the other hand, I am keenly aware of the, the, the laws in the state of Oregon, mandatory minimum sentencing laws that require no ifs, ands, and buts about it, that absolutely require a 10-year sentence day for day for a DUI manslaughter. And now I've got two of them. Mm-hmm. So I know that I'm going to prison for for close to 20 years at the age of 24. So, I mean, there's no way I can adequately characterize how low that moment felt. But it was obviously, clearly the worst day of many people's lives. Martin, I, this could be anybody. This is what's so frightening. I... I I'm just, I think about the times when I was irresponsible and it's hitting really close to home. I just, I mean, I'm saying I'm, I just feel so awful and sorry. It doesn't even, <laughs> there are no words. No, um, I'm, I'm like, there are no words, but um, keep, you can, yeah, keep going. <laughs> sure. I'm so sorry. Yeah. No, it's 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 okay. Um, I tell people. I mean, I I I appreciate the you know the empathy or sympathy or whatever it is. But I mean, I'm still alive. Yeah. Right. I, and and these beautiful people. I know. I know. Yeah. That's what I. I. It's like that split second. It's like thank God you're here, right. and you've changed your life, and, and you have devoted other, your life, yeah, to change lives. To helping others and, you know, but telling know. your story and, and so, so we may helping and making changes. So I think, um, you know, it's probably really hard to retell it and relive it, but we appreciate you going through that again for us, because I know it's probably really hard. Yes, ma'am. So three days later, I'm in my cell. I'm just minding my own business. And I noticed that someone had slid the Oregonian newspaper, which is our statewide newspaper. They had slid it underneath my door, and I couldn't understand why, because I didn't ask to see a paper. But I figured there must be something in there for me to read. So I pick it up, and I begin to thumb through this paper, and I see my picture on the front page of one of the the sections, and, and I begin to read the article. And with each paragraph that I read, for the first time in days, my faceless victims became people. Mm-hmm. And these people had a story. And their story was that they were recovering addicts who had managed to turn their lives around and were now helping others get clean and sober. They were volunteers with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, no less. They were volunteers at Volunteers of America. They would watch women's children so that these women could attend AA and NA meetings. The very night that this happened, believe it or not, they were returning home from a clean and sober New Year's Eve party when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. And so the columnist had, had highlighted the irony of that, right? He called it a palpable irony that these people who had devoted their lives to helping people get clean and sober would be killed by a drunk driver. But here's what he said at the end of it. It changed my life forever. Quote, 
perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them, end quote. Now, I'm 24 years old, yeah. and I'm still, I'm still trying to grasp the fact that I'm going to go to prison for about 20 years. So I couldn't fully appreciate the value in that statement and what, and what it was going to mean for my life in that moment. Okay. It, was, it was such a profound statement that I couldn't ignore it, right? I would literally meditate on that phrase from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed and I would just hear it over and over and over in my head. And so I would I would pray about it and ask for revelation and understanding into how I was supposed to apply those words to my life, right? Yeah. And so I don't. it took maybe six or seven months and then it finally came to me, right? And I tell people it didn't come from some thunderous voice from the heavens, it was not revealed in some vivid dream, but rather in the firm conviction mm. that the only way this tragedy will not be in vain is if I carry on these people's legacies, right? Yeah. If I literally make it my life's mission to do everything I possibly can to not just ensure that something like this never happens again, which is which is paramount, but also to help people who are in active addiction so that they don't have to create other havoc and chaos and victimization in their lives right and those around them right and so and so that became so i in that moment i agreed to spend the rest of my life doing this work i didn't know how that would manifest i had no idea what that would look like in what capacity but i knew i was committed to the cause and yeah. so that was when i when i when i made that decision um to make this my life's purpose they say every every decision now and every thought that you have now results in future actions, right? So you taking that time for those six months and, and actively using your present moment to manifest that is so powerful and so beautiful. And I'm curious, did you ever contact or reach out or have communication with that article, the author of the article, the journalist? I did about Three or four months ago, I reached out to that person and they are no longer there, but whoever stepped into their position had contacted me back and um, they were interested in possibly coming to see me speak because I speak at DUI victim impact panels and, and I'll be doing high schools this year and things like that. So there, we're, we're working to possibly set something up where there could be a follow-up story. It's really a beautiful turn. Uh, it, it's a true, beautiful life story do you mind telling us exactly how long you were in prison what exactly happened in the end and um what you've been doing you know exactly sure so i i was sentenced to 210 months 17 and a half years and again it was it was day for day you can't earn a single day off for good behavior or going to school or getting you know anything so i did 17 and a half years uh, during that time, I, I committed to the, the purpose. And so I figured um, if I'm going to help people in addiction, I should probably become a substance abuse counselor. Well, you need an education to do that. I had a GED at the time. And so I immediately enrolled. Uh, they were allowing us to take one college course per term from a community college uh, uh, in, in the area. And so I did that. And I figured if I take enough classes, maybe they'll give me a degree at some point. So I started to do that. Three years into my sentence, I lost my father, but in that happening, I was able to get his, you know, part of his pension and life insurance money and stuff like that. So now I can afford to take 
co uh, courses from from universities, right? And so, because contrary to a lot of people's belief, you no longer get funding, federal funding, to you know finance a college program in, in prison. So if you're going to get it, you got to do it privately. So I was able to start taking classes from Indiana University and Louisiana State University. And I parlayed all of that into an associate's degree in 2010. And then I went on to get a bachelor's in sociology from uh, Colorado State in 2013. And then I ended up uh, getting a master's in psychology from California Coast University in 2016. And so during that process is when I started to really unravel all of these youthful motivations and indiscretions and why I have such a strong need to belong and identity, you know, issues and, and, you know, self-concept and self-esteem and, and all these things that start to allow me to peel back the layers into where this all started and why it started. And I'm using that in my surroundings to mentor young guys coming into the system who needed somebody to look up to in, in, in a positive light because there's so many gangs and people, you know, trying to, you know, get a hold of these young guys to, you know, have them do their dirty work. But they would see how I did my time and I was consistent in the way that I carried myself and I wasn't in, in the trouble. And, you know, and so and so they they confided in me, uh, you know, about childhood traumas and and just all sorts of things you would not imagine people would talk about in prison. And so that was also reaffirming to me that, that counseling was where I needed to be. So now that I had the education, I needed to figure out, well, how do I get certified as a substance abuse counselor? Because there's no sanctioned program in the Department of Corrections that, that allows for that. So I ended up transferring to the one prison that, had, that has a drug and alcohol program, which is an atrocity to think how many people who deal with drugs and or alcohol who are incarcerated, but there's only, you know, one or two programs that, 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 that allow people to, to um, access that. But I was fortunate enough to transfer there and I met with the clinical director and explained what I wanted to do. And he said, being that you've invested so much into your future and your education, I'll work with you. You can work under me and I'll show you the ropes and all the clinical you know, skills that you need and get those hours uh, for state certification. But before that, I went through his program as a participant, learning all about you know, relapse warning triggers and, you know, the warning signs and the biopsychosocial spiritual model of recovery. So now I'm understanding the difference between sobriety and recovery, right? Because I thought I was in recovery this whole time. I hadn't drank. I got all this education. I know all this stuff, but I hadn't, I hadn't learned the recovery component. So now I'm getting a lot more tools and coping mechanisms and, and things like that that I'm able to then use to help other guys. So I went through his program. And then I interned in this program and I started to mentor guys in that clinical setting. I'm leading the groups and, and I'm really making some some headway into the, 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 you know, the clinical aspect of this of this calling. And so all that to say I was certified as a recovery mentor in 2018 and then I got certified as a substance abuse counselor in 2019. And I released from prison last year in June of, of 21. And I have spoken at DUI victim impact panels um, all throughout Oregon. And then I do them remotely every month as well. And so um, I've spoken uh, in schools and I'm going to be doing some here in Pennsylvania. And I've, I've reached out to, uh, you know, state police because they do trainings when they train the new cadets and they have a DUI portion of it, looking to get connected with them. And then the, the DA's offices have the driver safety courses uh, here in Pennsylvania. And so I've, I've reached out to them and I'm looking to get some things set up. 
And so it's about, you know, speaking to, to, to people who, who need to hear it. And frankly, all of us, like you said, we, we normalize drinking and driving so much in our society from the, the doctor, the lawyer, the, you know, superintendent, all the way down to the, you know, whatever, you know, fast food worker or, or whomever, right? It's, it's, it's very normal. And so uh, I use my story to, to try to teach about the, the warnings of, of drinking and driving, the irreversible consequences, the ripple effect, yeah. and, um, you know, and, and, and how we can avoid it. But then overall, just to help people who are struggling in active addiction and that they can reach out to 988. So 988 is a beautiful, beautiful thing. You can reach out if you are struggling with, with, with you know, an emotional crisis or if you are looking to get resources in your community, wherever you may be, to get, you know, uh, uh, help for your, your use, you can call 988 and somebody will gladly, gladly connect you with resources. You do not have to do this alone. You should not try to do it alone. None of us can do it alone. We all need each other to be able to lean on each other and get through uh, our really tough times in life. You are truly building Absolutely. a community of people it's, with the mission that we all have of helping people become better. You really yeah. have a crusade. You use your incredible. time. It is. And yeah. you use your time. Yeah. So wisely. And, and, so and, and it's, it's such an it's it's so inspiration. Be, it's so beautiful. Um, I'm, to hear from you. Yeah. And we appreciate this so much that you have come on here to talk with us. And um, yeah, I'm just blown away by yeah. your, your words, um, your fortitude, yeah. your, your sense of yourself that you've mm -hmm. discovered. It's incredible. Yeah. This is Thank what you. we are here to do. Yeah. We're, so, when we're given situations we create situations and then we're in the in the deep darkness it, this is what we yeah. are meant to do we are meant to find each other yeah. build each other up and create the I best feel life so possible. grateful to have met you I yeah, really feel thank you like you're doing incredible yeah. things Martin thank you well and, and, and you're right that you know when we go through I don't believe that we go through adverse circumstances and tragedies and whether it's self-inflicted or, or otherwise I don't think we go through that just because, you know, if you believe in a higher power, that your higher power is trying to punish you yeah. or that you go through it just just because, right? Just happenstance. I don't yeah. believe that. I believe that we go through what we go through because there are invaluable, incredible life lessons that are to be extracted right. from that so that we can enhance ourselves so that we can then be of service to other people yeah, that's and exactly. help them as they're going through that or going to go through that or know somebody who's going through that. That's what I believe the inherent reason is behind why we go through what we go through. But if we're only focusing on the the the, the negativity of the or of, of the circumstance and that oh this is terrible this should never happen to me why is this happening to me I can't then we're gonna totally miss the point. That's exactly right? Right. yeah like no poor me like oh why did I yeah. have to have a problem with alcohol like no yeah. no like, it doesn't work I, that way. like we put ourselves out there we tell our story we have this podcast I you know put myself out there do my writing and I'm putting my book out there so I can help others That's you know right. like we recover out loud so others don't have to suffer in silence right. and I truly believe that like yeah. we are being super vulnerable and you know, others may look at us like, what are they doing? Like, why are they doing that? It's so weird. But like, it truly is weird. We are doing the hard work. We are helping others. Right. And yeah. in 
you know, I, I applaud you and yeah. I, and we thank you so much for coming on here and talking with our listeners. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank Martin. you, Martin, so much. Let's stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds yeah. wonderful. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. It was truly an honor and a pleasure. You guys are doing incredible work. Please continue. I know you will. You're saving lives. You're helping people get connected with other people who are who are in this fight. And uh, and we do it in community. We don't do it in isolation. So thank That's you for great. allowing me to be a part of your community. This is only the beginning, right? Yes, awesome. ma'am. Oh, uh, have All the right. best best weekend. It's a long weekend yeah. coming up, and um, you deserve to enjoy yourself and all that the world has to offer. Thank you so much. Thank you, Martin. Thank you.